Take your Bibles and uh, turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John 17. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, the band U2 came out with a song entitled One. And it resonated with people all over the world and is featured in many polls as one of the greatest uh, rock songs of all time. Uh, There have been multiple interpretations of the song's meaning, everything from divorce, which is what one of the band members was going through at the time, to tension in the band. Uh, Bono, the lead singer, says he had many things going through his mind when they recorded the song. And there's a story about how the song came about. They were in the studio recording, and their, the, the guitarist, the Edge, he played a rift, and Bono came to the mic and just started to sing, and out comes the song, and just a few minutes' time, uh, it, it's just coming out and just growing lyrically as it progresses. And by the time you get to the end of the song, it has grown into something that is much more than the struggle of a band or a couple, but it's the struggle of humanity to be one. And so he sings in the song, we're one, but we're not the same. We hurt each other, then we do it again. These guys in this song are crying out in the midst of struggle and pain in the world. In the midst of conflict and and, and strife, they're crying out that we would be one, that there would be unity and harmony among men. Now, we can all identify with that longing. We all get tired and weary of the strife and of the conflict and of the anger and of the backbiting because we know in our hearts we were made for something more. Now, there is a tension in that song between two dynamics that reflect something that is true in reality. In one sense, we are all one in our humanity. The seven billion people on this planet are made in the image of God. That's the one common bond that we all share. But on the other hand, we struggle. In spite of that common bond, there is pain and there is hurt, and we long for a tension to be resolved. And Bono identifies the problem, but he does not provide a solution. And so, if you really want to seriously consider unity, the kind of unity that God desires that you and I were truly designed for, then we need to turn away from Bono and we need to turn to Jesus and see what Christ has to say about unity. And Christ's teaching on this in John 17 comes in the form of a prayer. So let's take a close look at this prayer right now. Please stand with me. We stand at Harbin's Church when we read the sermon text as a way of reminding ourselves that this word that we read is, has the very authority of God because it is the very Word of God, so he who has an ear, let him hear. John chapter 17, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 20. Uh, And even though due to the constraints of time, I'm going to only be able to focus on the first few verses, let's go ahead and read on down through the end of the chapter. Starting at verse 20, our Lord and Savior prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know 
that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us as we contemplate your word. There is so much depth here. (laughs) Father, we really do need your help. So I pray that you would help us to receive the word, to understand the word, to know how it applies, to believe it, to bank on it, and to love it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our Lord Jesus, in his prayer, teaches us three key things about the oneness that God has made us for. And the first crucial thing that we discover is that we are to be one in the gospel, one in the gospel. Very often you will have people citing Jesus' statements on unity here, and they take it out of context, and they'll say, listen, we all believe in a higher power, Uh, we're all people of faith. We all want to make the world a better place, and so we all need to be united. Let let the walls come down. Let's all get together, whether we be Christians or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Jews. Jesus preached unity. Jesus was about bringing people together, so let's all come together right now over me, as the song says. Let's come together in answer to Jesus' prayer. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he's thinking unity. Look at verse 20 and see who and what Jesus has in mind regarding unity. He says, I do not ask for these only. These would be the 11 disciples who are with him in that moment. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. So Jesus is not praying for Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists, that they be one. He is exclusively praying for those who believe in Jesus. He is praying for all Christians of all times and all places. And so, the foundation for true unity according to Jesus is that we believe in Jesus. But more than that, Jesus says he is praying for those who will believe in him through their word, through the specific word about a specific Christ preached by these specific apostles. And what was that word? It was the word of the gospel, uh, the good news that forgiveness of sins is available through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. This is the heart of the apostolic gospel. And it is the unity of all who believe in that word that Jesus is praying for. Jesus is not praying for the unity of all seven billion people on the planet and the unity of those who deny God's word. We, we know this from the very beginning of the Bible, that God's not interested in that kind of unity. So, for example, you go to Genesis 11, and the people, they come together, united. But it was a unity rooted not in a desire to exalt God, 
but in a desire to exalt self. It was a unity of rebellion against God and against God's revelation as they try to build the Tower of Babel as a monument to their strength and their power and their glory. God is not interested in that kind of unity. Indeed, he opposes that. And so in Genesis 11, God disrupts their unity, and in the end, the people end up divided and separated. In our Western modern context, we hear a lot of talk about unity and how it would be wonderful if we all just came together, but it's always a vain effort. God opposes that kind of unity that is outside of Him, and not only does God oppose that, but our own sin and selfishness eventually undermines that. As John Calvin wrote, whenever Christ speaks about unity, let us remember how basely and shockingly, when separated from Him, the world is scattered. And so, Jesus here is not praying for a generic, warm, fuzzy kind of unity among everybody all around the world, regardless of their beliefs. His prayer specifically targets those who believe in the gospel and who believe in Jesus, the biblical Jesus. I have to to throw that in there because many people embrace a different Jesus, a recreated Jesus. And so, for example, the Jesus of uh, Islam or the Jesus of Hinduism or the, uh, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism is very different than the biblical Jesus as described by the apostles. But Jesus in verse 20 talks about a people who believe in him through their word. If you reject the word of the apostles about Jesus as contained in the New Testament, you have rejected the real Jesus and you've created your own Jesus instead. And and the Jesus you created can't save you or bring about true unity because he's not real. So Jesus is praying about a oneness that is rooted in the real gospel and in the real Christ. So what does that oneness look like? Jesus actually tells us, which leads to my next point, is that we are to be one as God is one. One as God is one. The oneness of believers, of Christians, is to be modeled after the unity between the Father and the Son. And so in verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then look at verse 22. He says, he prays that they may be one even as we are one. Notice that that the bond between the Father and the Son is so strong They are so closely bound and knit together in unity and loving harmony that they are not described merely as being close to one another, but that they're actually in one another. Now, that kind of unity between the Father and the Son is seen everywhere in the Gospel of John. So, for example, Jesus talks about how the the, the words that he says are the words that the Father says. He says, what the Father does, the Son does. He says, to look upon Jesus is to look upon the Father. And here we begin to wade into very deep waters as we consider the relationships within the Godhead, the Trinity. There is only one God, and yet this God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and there is such a a closeness and a unity in the Godhead that though they are three, yet they are one. And from eternity past, there has been a river of love and unity and harmonious relationship continuously flowing from one member of the Trinity to the others. There is unity in the Godhead. 
They are one. And yet, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct individual persons. They are distinguishable with differing roles and differing functions. It's it's the Son and not the Father who goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. It is the Father, not the Spirit, who sends the Son into the world. It It is the Spirit who comes to specifically gift and empower the church for mission. There are distinctions between them, yet they are one. One in purpose, one in nature, one in love, their hearts and their wills bending in the same direction. And it is this kind of unity that Jesus has in mind for the church, a unity in the midst of diversity. You and I and other believers in this room, we are distinct persons, distinct individuals, uh, distinct giftings. We may even even have uh, differing convictions about certain points uh, of Christian living, according to passages like Romans 14, and yet at our core... Our hearts and our wills are ultimately bending in the same direction towards the supremacy of Christ and His gospel. And so part of Bono's words in that song can actually apply to Christians. We are one, but not the same. That's the church. So Jesus prays that we might be one as the Father and the Son are one and are in one another. And then Jesus says something very surprising. If the relationship between the Father and the Son is analogous to our relationship as believers, then you would expect him then to say, let them, the believers, be in each other. But he doesn't say that. Instead, oneness in the church doesn't come through some sort of emotional and sentimental decision for us to come together and try to be in one another. Come on, guys, let's just get together and create some unity here. The grounds of your unity is not in your strength or ability to create unity. So what's the grounds? Look at verse 21. We don't experience unity by being in one another. We experience it by together being in what? Look closely. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So our unity with one another hinges on our unity with Christ. It hinges on us being in the Father and in the Son. Not that our relationship with God is identical to the relationships in the Godhead. We're not God. But if you're a Christian, your relationship with God is so close that you are in Him and He is in you. You are united to God. You are joined and irreversibly connected with and bound to the king of the universe and he with you. You have been caught up and drawn into this loving relationship that the members of the Trinity have had from eternity past. You are immersed into that river of love and fellowship that the Godhead has enjoyed since before the foundation of the world. And so God's solution to a divided humanity is not for God from a distance telling us to get it together and get united and be one. Instead, God's solution for a fractured humanity is to unite man to himself. Because the root of the division in our horizontal relationships and the relationships between man and fellow man, the root of that 
is the division in our vertical relationship, the relationship between man and God. That's where all of our problems began, y'all. Long ago, God created Adam and Eve, the first humans, and guess what? They were perfectly one. They were one with God. They were one with one another. Adam and Eve were distinct, yet they were one, just like the Godhead. But they broke fellowship with God when they sinned. And in that terrible moment, they realized that the unity they had with God was actually the source of their life. And when that unity was broken, they became like branches cut off from the vine, entering into a state of death. And Adam and Eve, once children of God, became estranged from God's family, spiritual orphans on their own, distant from God, with twisted sinful minds, hostile to God. And when our vertical relationship with God gets out of whack, guess what? That always affects our horizontal relationship with others. And so immediately, the relationship between Adam and Eve was divided. And all of their descendants have inherited and perpetuated the divisive legacy of Adam, down to us today. A legacy of division, uh, of hostility, self-centeredness, hatred, and death. But God, being merciful and compassionate, sent Jesus into the world. And the Bible says in Colossians 1, for in him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus brought peace between God and man through the cross. His death paid the price of sin on behalf of man as our substitute. And after dying for sins, his resurrection from the grave proved that the wrath of God was satisfied, the payment was complete, and therefore all who receive by faith Christ's work on the cross as payment for their sins will find that there is now peace with God. The distance between God and men has not only been bridged, even better, we become united to him. No longer orphans, estranged, out there in the wilderness somewhere. Now we're brought into his household, members of his family. And being united to God, who is the source of life, that life begins to flow into us, reversing the curse of sin. And the warped and twisted minds we all have as descendants of Adam begins to be renewed and untwisted, changing our attitude towards God from hostility to love. Not a perfect love, but a growing love that begins at salvation and is perfected in heaven. And as that vertical relationship with God is mended, that makes possible a restoration and renewal and unity in our horizontal relationships as God begins to transform our attitudes about others from hostility to love. Again, not a perfect love, but one that grows as we experience life in the Father and in the Son. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to a church that is full of Jews and Gentiles, two groups that formerly hated and despised one another. You couldn't get them together in the same room. And now all of a sudden he says in Ephesians 2 that Jesus' death has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Then he goes on further 
to say that they are being joined together, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you've got these Jews and these Gentiles, former enemies, now brothers and sisters, now one united household of God, the very dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Just as the same shared blood runs through the veins of a group of people uniting them as a race, so the same shared Holy Spirit is now inside of every believer uniting them in a deeper way than the physical because the Holy Spirit is stronger and thicker than blood. So strong and so thick that people who used to hate each other, these Jews and Gentiles, can now be at peace. The war is over. The weapons have been laid down because they are one. This is why Paul can write in Galatians 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you're all one. There's that word again, one. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Now, Paul is not saying in Galatians 3 that our oneness in Christ eliminates distinctions, the point here is that in spite, despite the vast diversity, our union with Christ still joins us together and makes us one. There is a unity in the diversity, just like in the Godhead. And as with the Godhead, we, the church, share the same spiritual nature. We have the same Father. We share the same life, the same purpose, and the same end goal, which is to glorify God. We are one. As Paul says to this very diverse church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, as we contemplate the unity of the church, as we contemplate the unity in Harbin's church, it is extremely important to remember that the Bible is not commanding you to create unity. That's above your pay grade. That's Jesus' job, not yours. He has already united and joined together and made us one spiritually in Christ. That aspect of Jesus' prayer has been answered and is being answered every time someone new comes to faith and is brought in to the family of God. But with that said, we all know that in spite of the objective reality of our oneness with other believers, sometimes our subjective experience is quite different, isn't it? And to our sorrow, we see churches and Christians acting in a way that does not appear unified, right? We see division in churches. We see gossip and anger and unloving attitudes and factions among Christians. And sometimes Bono's angst in that song can be applied to the church. We're one, but we're not the same. We hurt each other, then we do it again. It's as if our subjective experience needs to catch up to the objective reality. We are all as believers learning to live in this new identity as adopted family members in God's household, and we've got to unlearn old habits and old ways of relating to one another. That's really true of every aspect of our sanctification. And the whole New Testament is reminding us that we have a new identity now, and it's time to discover, grow into, and become who we really are. 
And so despite the objective facts of our reconciliation to God and to each other, that's the work that God has done, there's also the subjective experience of living out of those realities in response to those realities, and that's what we're responsible for. We're responsible for letting the reality of our union with God shape our understanding of our very identity and existence and way of life. That's why Paul in Ephesians, after spending three whole chapters going into great detail of how God has saved us, how God has united us to Christ, and has, how he's united us to one another, after spending three chapters going through all of that, he doesn't then end the book. And he doesn't just say, okay, now everybody just passively enjoy that unity because now things will automatically be happy happy ever after. Instead, after that, he actually writes three more chapters talking about our responsibility to now live in light of those truths, truths and what that specifically looks like. And so he says in Ephesians 4, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and check it out, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, Paul is saying, church, be who you really are. Uh, Let your life line up with your new identity in Christ. Consider, church, the glorious realities of being in Christ and being united to Him and being united to one another here and in light of that, live like it. One translation says, make every effort to keep yourselves united. Actively and aggressively pursue this kind of life in the church. And so while it's not our job to create unity, that's been done through Christ, it is our responsibility to eagerly maintain that unity. And we maintain that unity in light of gospel truths, gospel realities that are telling us how Jesus through the cross has bound us together with God and how he has made us one. So you show me a church divided by backbiting and clickishness, Uh, Show me a Christian marriage ripped asunder by bitterness and anger. Show me Christian friends who are estranged and they avoid each other on Sunday. Show me any kind of disunity between believers and I will show you a people who have forgotten, who are minimizing, or who are totally ignorant of who they really are in Christ. That they are in Christ that they are one with him and therefore one with that other believer. They are already bound and united to them. But, But the weight of such an incredible reality is not shaping their lives and informing how they are to treat and think about one another. And therefore, they're not eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that's already there. And this is not just semantics. Knowing and embracing who you are in Christ and your true relationship with other Christians will have an effect on how you live and how you do church. It'll affect it to the degree that we to, to the degree that we get a handle on those things is the degree to which we will enjoy a greater experience of unity in our church. And so how do we begin to move in that direction? 
Well, back up to verse 17. We actually looked at this last week, but let's look at it again. Jesus prays that we believers will be sanctified, will be set apart, will be made holy, made different, will be sanctified in the truth. And then Jesus says, your word is truth. So, as we let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly, over time, you as an individual... And over time, we as a church will more and more live up to that unity that we already have as that word shapes our hearts and our minds. We have the power of the word, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, Where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus, and I do not ask myself whether whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for the question, for I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love him. So Spurgeon there just illustrated my point. Thanks, Charles. The point that knowing our identity in Christ and how that binds us together as believers, how that binds us to one another, that actually really becomes the basis and motivation in our mutual expression of unity. Knowing those realities actually does make a difference. You see, unlike the world, whose attempts at living in a united way will always in the end fall apart, you and I have God's very life in us that has already united us, and we have His Word and His Spirit that can bring this church to new heights of experiencing and love and a unity that we've never achieved before. And God has called us to attain this. And he's given us the resources to do it. It's not an option. It's a beautiful calling. And as we as a church grow in holy harmony with one another, better reflecting the unity and harmony in the Godhead, we will find that it will not be just us that benefits. Because Jesus also prays that the church will be one for the sake of the world. That's my final point. One for the sake of the world. Friends, there is a lot at stake in Christian unity. It is not just about us enjoying the experience of unity among ourselves in our own little group. The stakes are much higher than that. The expression of Christian unity will play a role in whether or not people will go to heaven or hell. Our Lord Jesus tells us clearly what the end goal is in Christian unity is. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? What's the purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Or, go down to verse 23, he prays that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Feel the weight of that, Harbin's Church. Don't let that one pass you by. Jesus is not just praying for the objective unity of the church. He is also praying that the unity be lived out and, 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 and a part of our subjective experience in a way that it is made visible to others, visible to the world. 
Because Jesus' desire for the church's unity is not just for our benefit, but it is rooted in evangelistic purposes. The expression of unity that believers have towards one another is actually meant to communicate a message about Christ to the unbelieving world. And it will lead to belief. John MacArthur, commenting on this passage, says that if we live the kind of lives that we ought to live consistent with what God has done for us and in us, the world is going to see a massive transformation. If the world is going to see this internal unity, there's going to be an attraction to the gospel. If you care about evangelism, then you will care about how this church expresses loving unity. You will care about how you are treating others in this church. You will care about how you yourself are demonstrating your eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is not just for the sake of us, but it's for the sake of the world. And this is not the first time that Jesus talks this way. In John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there it is again. Our conduct as a church family, our unity with one another, expressed in love, sends a very powerful message to the world. Jesus says to love one another as he has loved us. And how has he loved us? By denying himself, by humbling himself, by lowering himself, uh, to, to, by serving us, to act in a way that was for our good, even at great expense and cost to himself as he went to the cross and hung and bled and died for you and me, for people unlovely, for people undeserving, and for people unworthy. And Jesus is calling Harbin's church to do the exact same thing, to express the reality of our unity. We may have some differences with one another. We may have some different ideas about some things. We may irritate one another sometimes. I know I irritate you as your pastor. We may have some differences in practical daily Christian living. We may even have some differing interpretations in certain matters of doctrine non-essential for salvation. And yet none of that exempts us from Jesus' command to express our unity through loving one another as he loves us. If we cannot grow strong in this area, we will be of little use to the world outside these walls. But if, through the power of the Spirit and through the Word changing and softening our hearts, If Harbin's church can grow more and more in this, then we send a signal to the world that the gospel is true, Jesus is real, and he really did what we are telling people that he did. But if we don't grow in our expression of unity, if we settle for lovelessness, for factions, for gossip, for divisiveness, for an accusatory spirit, for not assuming the best about one another, if we go down that path, then we're telling lies to the world about the unity of the Godhead. We're telling lies about Christ, lies about the gospel, lies about God's power to really bring about peace and unity and oneness. As the Puritan Thomas Manton said, division in the church breeds atheism in the world. As MacArthur says, the effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated by dissension and disputes among its members. I became a Christian when I was 20 years old. It's a long time ago. I can barely 
reach back in my mind to those days of 1991, but there are some things I remember clear, like when I came to Christ. And after years of God working on my heart, one of the final things that God used to push me over the edge was being around other Christians. I was invited to start attending these uh, Wednesday night church meetings with other young people. And after being around these folks for a few weeks, it became very obvious to me that these people were way different (laughs) than my non-Christian friends. They had something about them and something in them that was unlike anything that I'd ever seen before. There was a love in them for God and a love for one another that just blew me away. And were they perfect? Absolutely not. And as I got to know them better, that became more obvious. They weren't perfect. But there was this love and this expression of unity in the gospel that was almost tangible. It was like I could just touch it. The gospel was preached and taught through words, but their lives backed it up in their loving unity and in how they treated one another. And it was an observation of that oneness, that expression of unity among believers, that actually helped me to believe that this Jesus stuff was real and that what was being preached was real. And I wanted what they had, and I got it. I went after that. Praise God, he opened my eyes. Now, let's bring that home to Harbin's. If an unbeliever was to observe this church, how we interact with one another, how we treat one another, how we talk about one another behind others' backs, if they were invisible and followed us around and just watched this community of believers, what would he see? Would he see unity? Would he see a community that lives in response to the gospel, living out the oneness that we are supposed to have already? Or forget about some random unbeliever. How about this? Christian husbands and wives, if you have kids, what are your kids observing in you? Right? You're preaching the gospel to them. You're telling them about Jesus and how to be saved. But what are they observing in you? Christian husbands, what conclusion about the gospel might your kids come to based on how they see you treat your wife? Christian wives, what message are you sending to your children about the gospel you're preaching to them based on how you deal with your husband? If unbelievers observed our church, observed our families, observed our friendships, considered our unity, would they see anything different than what they see in the world? If the world is not seeing us live changed lives, reconciled relationships, if they're not seeing that, then why in the world would they be interested in Christ? They already have broken and divided relationships in the world. And then they join us, and and, and they still have that, but now they can't sleep in on Sunday? What's the point? As a pastor, there are a few things that shatter my heart more than when Christians are at odds with one another, squabbling with one another, assuming the worst, being suspicious of one another, more concerned about being served than serving. And I've seen it in every church I have ever served in, including this one, and I've seen such sinful attitudes poisoning my own heart. And we all together have got to be vigilant. We've got to seek to kill divisive thoughts and attitudes immediately when they rear their ugly heads. Like, take no mercy on those things when they show up in your mind and in your heart. 
we forget how high the stakes are. But Satan doesn't forget. I think he's paid closer attention to Jesus' prayer for our unity than than we have. Satan doesn't want the world to believe in Jesus through our expression of unity, so he'll suck believers into foolish squabbles and controversies and battles with one another in the church or on the internet, savaging one another on Twitter or wherever else it may be. I'm not trying to put anyone on a guilt trip. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. We have all messed up here multiple times throughout our Christian life. At least I think I'm not the only one. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our expression of unity with one another. But you know what? People in the world might be saved by it. As God uses it to testify to the validity of the gospel that we preach. The stakes are high, but it's Jesus who raises them, not me. And he raises them again in verse 23. He says, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. As the world at large sees the love and unity that we have with one another, it shows the world that we have experienced God's love ourselves. That's what I saw as a 20-year-old unbeliever around those Christians. I saw people who had experienced the love and grace of God, and so in turn they were able to put that love on display in how they treated one another. And so every opportunity for you to love, to show mercy, to serve, to forgive, to reconcile with fellow believers is an opportunity to show the world that you weren't joking when you said you experienced God's love in Christ. And so Harmon's Church, I urge you this morning, as word-saturated, spirit-filled believers embracing your true identity to build bridges, make peace, mend fences with other Christians starting now. If you're at odds with another believer, the time to demonstrate that you have received God's love and grace by pouring it out on a Christian brother or sister is right now or in about 15 minutes when we're dismissed. God has said that he has torn down the walls of hostility between believers through the gospel. And so to refuse to reconcile, to resist living out that unity that God has forged between us is to fight against the very purposes of God. And it sends a signal to the world that the gospel is a sham and that Christ's death is a waste of blood, that Christianity is no different than false empty religions that promise big and don't deliver. They don't have the power to change anything. Now, maybe there's no one you need to reconcile with. You're all good with everybody. Maybe instead, a way you need to express loving unity is by making more of a conscious effort to lovingly insert yourselves into the lives of others in this congregation. The Bible is full of concrete examples of how we can express and maintain the unity that we have in Christ We are urged to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.1. Forgive one another, Romans 15.14. Pray for one another, James 5.16. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Once more, not provoke one another to anger, but to love and to good works, Hebrews 10.24. I'll stop there. There's many, many more like that in the Scriptures. And if you think our church, if you think Harbin's church is weak in the area of unity and love, then here's my challenge for you. Consider how you might be a part of the solution. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond 
of peace. Consider. Consider how you can be part of the solution. Don't think so much about how other people are failing. Think about where you can grow. Christ has given us all the resources we need to move more and more into this direction. We're not alone in this. He is with us, and he will help us. So together as a church, starting today, commit together to work towards a greater expression of oneness and unity for our sakes, for the sake of the world who desperately needs the gospel, and for the glory of God. Amen?